What an intro. Multi-talented. That's what my mom always said. You're multi-talented. <laughs> no, hey, I'm so glad to, to be here today and to, to share with you guys today. I get this opportunity every once in a while, and um, I don't take it for granted. Thank you, Pastor A, for the opportunity. We're continuing our series, Faith, Hope, and Love, this morning. And uh, I've really enjoyed it so far. Has anybody else enjoyed this series? Amen, yeah. I think Pastor Ray's done such a great job. You know, last week I was listening to the message and I'm like, Pastor Ray did such a good job at just pointing us to the scriptures and in a way showing us and letting them speak for themselves. There's so much there that to discuss. Uh, like you could go on forever about it, but um, she showed us the mountains of evidence from God for why we should have faith and hope. And last week was so great hearing about how Jesus, our, our hope and, and Jesus is alive because he's alive. A living hope that we have is tied to our faith, but it's also uniquely different and separate. And um, So today we're going to be uh, talking about love. And in the love chapter, so to speak, 1 Corinthians 13, the last verse, Paul says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So I... I guess it's safe to say, Pastor Ray, this is going to be the best message of the series. I don't know. That's, I'm just quoting scripture. I'm just saying, like, this is, apparently this is what Paul think is, thinks is the best thing. And I think, no, we will find that out today, that love is the key. A key unlocks everything, right? The right key can lock, unlock the right door. It's the key to faith and hope. It's the key to just about everything that you want in life. If you're sitting here listening, or if you're watching online, listening, if there's something you need in life, love is the key. It's the key to everything that God wants of you as a child as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through 1 Corinthians 13 together. We're going to digest what Paul instructs us to do. And then at the end here, I have three points about practical characteristics of love. All right, you guys ready? Anybody else ready? Okay, cool. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, all right, go off to a hot start here. <laughs> That's, okay, I'm going to take this personally. If I'm, I'm here talking to you today and I don't have love, it's just noise. It's just noise. None of it means anything. It's just noise if I don't have love, okay? He's not holding back. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing, not just not as good as I should be, not just what I want, to, not just coming short, I am nothing. It doesn't mean anything. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul's listing a bunch of things that are ruined, completely ruined by a lack of love. And I would surmise to say that the real list of things that are ruined by love is much longer. What isn't ruined 
by a lack of love. What do we have that can be good without love? Knowledge, nope. Speaking, singing, dancing, faith, hope, good deeds. I mean, selfish motivation at the core of your deeds. If you're doing it for yourself, right? What is it really for? And we'll talk about more, more about that later. But what about right behavior? What if you do the right thing, but you don't have love? Well, maybe it's because you're not being obedient, but you're doing it because you're told to do it. It's legalism. What does legalism get you? Right, do you see that? Even everything that we do, <clears throat> everything that we do, if we don't have love, we're headed in the wrong direction. Listen to this commentary on that scripture we just read, verses one through three. Spe- specifically about if I have faith that can move mountains. Listen to this. The most wonder-working faith to which nothing is impossible is itself nothing without love. Moving mountains is a great achievement in the count of men, but one ounce of love is, in God's account is of much greater worth than all the faith of this sort of the world. Those may do many wondrous works in Christ's name, yet he will disown them. Right, so we're talking about working miracles. Let's turn to Matthew 7, because I'm not just, I'm not just, that doesn't, that lines up with scripture, and I want to show you how. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. The commentary said, those that do many wondrous works in Christ's name, yet he will disown them. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the, ones who does, the, only the one who does the will of the, my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here's a statement that I want to let just kind of just process it. I don't know if anybody here is an internal processor. If you're an external processor, this is a tough setting for you. (laughs) But uh, listen to this. Saving faith. So the faith that saves you. We're talking about the faith of miracles here. Saving faith is always in conjunction with love. You are met with the love of God, the love of Christ. It saves you. It changes you. It renews you, right? The faith of miracles may be without it, but not without consequence. That's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing here. People were performing miracles. He predicted that people, Jesus predicted that people would be performing miracles, Yet what were they missing? Love. God was gracious to to do the work for the sake of the people on the receiving end of the miracle, right? God would use, do we not know that? Do not, not know that God would use someone who's broken for the sake of his kingdom? We know that, right? I'm not perfect. Nobody here is perfect. Nobody here has figured it all out to the point they're like, I am exactly who I'm supposed to be in every moment of my life. And that's why God uses me. No, 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 no. God's gracious. That's why he uses you. So Jesus was predicting this. People would go and perform miracles. 
cast out demons, they would prophesy, but they didn't have love. They were not in the will of the Father. Man, plenty of people that day followed Jesus around during his ministry on earth. They were so enthralled by the miracles he was performing, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Pharisees. And some of them followed specifically for the miracles because they just couldn't believe it. They just kept needing to see more. They needed to see more, needed to see more. When Jesus followed up the miracles with teachings about take, your, take up your cross and follow me, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, or those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples, his following dwindled. It literally says that, that people just left him. This disciples, people that were supposed to be following him and, and digesting his teachings, they left him. They couldn't handle the teachings. They couldn't handle the radical call of Christ to come and die to your flesh and learn to love. So the question for you today is, what is it that you desire today? Do you desire the things of the spirit? Yes or no? Yes. Do you desire to see signs and wonders and healings and prophecy? Yes or no? Well, first, we'd better learn to love. Let's read on in verse, starting at verse four of 1 Corinthians 13. And this might be the uh, most commonly read scripture at weddings. So before I do it, does anybody want to get married? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is all, it's like, this is like the, the scripture to read at a wedding. It's the perfect scripture to read at a wedding. At a wedding. But I, you know, I always feel like my wife and I are, are photographers, so we go to a lot of weddings. And um, so I, I, get, I hear this verse a lot, and I also watch what happens when it's being read. And a lot of times it's like the couples are standing there and just like looking at each other, like smiling, right? And like this is being read, like love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. And I'm like, oh, I hope they're listening to it. You know what I mean? Because there's so much going on on a wedding day. It's like, it's so easy to be distracted. But this, these verses are heavy especially in the context of a marriage. It's so easy to just hear it and be like, yeah, that's what love is. But to practice these things, the call to practice these things. So let me just read this. And we can act like we're at a wedding, whatever. No, I'm just kidding. But if you're comfortable, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it slowly. And I just want you, I'm not going to overinterpret all of these things here. Because I think a lot of these scripture, these, this text right here, it speaks for itself. I think we can identify with what does it mean? Just listen to it. So if you're comfortable, close your eyes with me and let's just read this together. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That last verse, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All of those things there are active actions to protect, to trust, to hope, to persevere. And we'll talk more about that later. 
when we talk about the characteristics of love, <clears throat> if we read on, starting at verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There's a lot there, so let me help, let me help us go through this. What Paul is doing here is he's really driving home the point of how important love is. All these gifts that we have now here on earth, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, they're all glimpses of what is to come, heaven. In heaven, there will be no need for these gifts, okay? Tongues will cease to exist because in heaven there will be one language, right? Prophecy will cease to exist because what could still be foretold? The gift of knowledge will cease to exist because what else could need to be revealed, isn't that awesome? So this, the, as much as we rejoice in prophecy and the tongues and, and the gift of knowledge now, it's just a glimpse. It's just for now, right? Love will remain. Love will carry over. And I'm being poetic here. Love is the language of heaven. Love is the future foretold. Love is the word that we need to know the word of knowledge. That's what it is. And in heaven, it's all revealed, the fullness of love. And today, now on earth, it all revolves around practicing love. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues, it all revolves around love. And as children of God, we must know this love. We must be able to differentiate between the love of this world and the love of God. And here's three things that make the love that Paul speaks of separate and different. Love is a choice. Say, love is a choice. It's not always unconscious or automatic. Let's turn to Matthew 5, verse 43. <clears throat> he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love you're, and hold on, let me start over. Well, Jesus, this is crazy what Jesus is saying. If you think about what, because maybe we gloss over this now. We think about Jesus saying this to the people, the Old Testament, the Pharisees that are stuck where they are in their law, in their ritual. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Otherwise, what are you? 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? What Jesus is proving here is that your unconscious, thoughtless, automatic love will only get you to love the people that are lovable. The people that everybody can love. The love of Christ, however, knows no bounds. It's a conscious choice, a deliberate, intentional choice. And you know, you won't drift towards loving your enemies. Tell me, anybody here want to raise their hand and tell me that feels natural? You've got to choose to do it. God chose to love us. I'm going to talk, we're going to, let's switch to, go over to Ephesians here, Ephesians chapter 2. says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. He's talking to us. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Wise men of old say that that is the greatest but of all time. (laughs) It is. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So there's a lot of, when we talk about the Trinity, talk about Jesus, the Son, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit. It can get tricky when you talk about, well, Jesus walked the earth, right? We're we're saying he was a human. He came to us as a human, but he was God. And that between God and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is no distinction, but they're all separate, but they're equal, but they're distinct, right? It's a mystery. There's no, there's no final answer for you to understand that fully. I mean, by all means, dig into it, because this is our God, right? This is who he is. But it's a mystery, And when I talk about this, it says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The Father God loves his children. Jesus the Son obeyed the Father and took our sin upon himself. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about that, but Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And when he walked on the earth, we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating blood with the reality of what, was he, what he was about to face, right? 
That's, if, if he's a robot, if he's God and he's like, this is what I have to do and it doesn't affect me. He doesn't do that. He's not burdened by it. He's not affected by the reality of the sacrifice that he's about to make. But we know that he was affected by it. He chose to do it. Right? He chose to do it. And th- does that in your mind make you think he could have chose not to do it? Yes, but he didn't choose not to do it. He chose to do it, right? He was faced with the reality of the decision. Now, God the Father had a will for him, and we know that, that Jesus went about his ministry all the time saying, I only do the will of the Father, right? So the will of the Father was for Jesus to to make himself a sacrifice on our behalf. All of that just absolutely shouts and screams that God chose to love us. It wasn't an obligation. He didn't have to do it. It was in his nature to love us, but he chose to do it, okay? And while we're talking about this, I wanna say, when we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, right? I know there's a lot of interpretation out there about like, well, can I be Jesus then? If, God, if Jesus was fully man, and I'm fully man, can I be him? And all of our teachings and all of the things you look at in scripture, be perfect, right? Be like him. But the reality is that if at any point you think that you can be Jesus, be exactly who Jesus was, then you have no need for him. There is a distinction between you and Jesus. Jesus had to be perfect in order for for it to be our sacrifice, right? We follow him. We want to be like Christ, right? In everything that we do, but we can never be who he is exactly. And that's so important. As soon as you get to a point where you're like, no, I can't because Jesus was fully man. And if he lived a perfect life, then I can live a perfect life. Well, then if you live a perfect life, who's your... What's the need for sacrifice? What's the need for atonement for your sins? Right? Okay, moving on. God chose to love us. When we look at love in our relationships, in our marriages, it's a choice. Amen? Love is a verb. Say love is a verb. Love is a verb. John Mayer, anybody? No? Cool, cool. All right. I knew I'd get one person. (laughs) It's more than just a feeling. It's something you do, right? And I know in marriage, this is such a helpful reminder. Um, Loving your spouse is so much more than just saying it. Loving anybody is so much more than just saying it or feeling it. But for those of us who are married, I would encourage you to try this if you're willing to deal with the results. (laughs) Ask your spouse do I love you? And if they, if they say no, okay, you know, just, you know where to start. <laughs> if they say yes, say, how do you know that I love you? And maybe you'll find a lot of evidence, and that's great. If you don't, now you know what to work on. Because <laughs> there might be a lot of words, right? And maybe not a lot of deeds. Love leaves a trail of evidence. It's not hard to find. 
And you know, this isn't exclusive to romantic relationships, right? Our brothers and sisters, if we say that we love each other, we have to, what do we have to show for it, right? Beyond just platitudes or just like, hi, how are you? Good, 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 good. How are you? Good, good, good. I mean, that feels like the only conversation sometimes you have with people. And you're like, yeah, cool, I know that guy. And you're like, what, do you really? Seen them at church on Sundays? And I'm like, have you talked to them? Have you asked them how you can help them? I'm convicting myself here too, right? Don't get it twisted though. You know, love always exists in relationships. It's not just about doing more. If we're talking about love as an action, it's not just like, I just got to do more and then I'll be loving that person. You know what? Because you could do a lot of stuff that's not actually loving for somebody. Doing what matters doing what is actually loving for them. And you can't know what's loving for someone until you serve them. You set aside your own thoughts and ideas and you listen. We have lots of actionable items, remember? 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through seven, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always preserves. It rejoices with the truth it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. None of that stuff happens outside of relationship. I mean, how do you keep record of wrongs outside of relationship? I mean, I guess you could, right? You could be hateful of somebody without even knowing them. We do that all the time. There's something called uh, the five love languages. Is anybody familiar with that? which is a helpful way of thinking about how we love others and how we receive love. It's not the Bible, you know, it's not scripture, but I think from a psychological standpoint, it can help us understand our tendencies and what, how we function as, as humans. So the five are words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time, and physical touch. So something you might know about me or not is that I'm not a great gift giver and I think that if, if you put that one on a list, gifts as far as like, what's the most common one that people are not good at, it would be that one. <laughs> I think generally people love words of affirmation. Uh, it's, for most people, it comes out easily um, to just adulate people. Gifts, however, you know, I've gotten better over the years, but around the holidays, man, I am scrambling to find gifts for people. And... Um, yeah, full disclosure. Anybody else? That's a lot less than I thought. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we'll skip this story then. Uh, <laughs> no, but the old, you know, the old Starbucks gift card feels like a cop-out, doesn't it? Sometimes like, hey, I got you something and take it or leave it. Um, <laughs> apparently though, I've been this way for quite some time. Uh, I can actually distinctly remember being a kid. It was my dad's birthday, and I was, I don't know, maybe five or six years old, uh, maybe older, maybe younger. I'm not, I don't have a journal from when I was that old. So, <laughs> And here I was, you know, time was running out. I didn't have a gift for my dad, mainly because I didn't have any money or a car or a means to get, you know, do what I wanted. <clears throat> so I thought I needed to give him something to show show my love for him. And I picked up on the whole gift giving for birthdays. And, you know, I had been a recipient for a couple years by then. 
this is what we do. We give gifts on birthdays. And, you know, I remember it coming down to the wire. I'm upstairs in my room. I'm wrapping this gift up. Everybody else is downstairs. And I come down and I, I give him this gift and he opens it up. And what is it? It was one of my toys. <laughs> and a nice shiny quarter taped to it. I don't know if it was shiny. I mean, that's the way I remember it, but it may have been dingy. Who knows? Um, but what in the world was he going to do with one of my toys, right? Like, what? Is, and I'm, I'm positive that my two older brothers were probably laughing when he opened it. Like, what are you doing, Nathan? Like, what kind of gift is this? You know what I mean? And like, what is he going to do with it? I know, actually, I do know that he could use the quarter, and I guarantee you he still has a receipt for what he used it for. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, no knock on gift giving, right? But let's say this. It may be one of the easier love languages or love's expressions to fake. I mean, they can all be faked, right? But if you think you can buy love in a bottle for somebody, you'll be sorely mistaken in the long run. So maybe at such a young age, maybe I was naive. But maybe my innocent heart understood better what I strive to know now Maybe deep down I knew I needed to give something up to show my love. Love is a sacrifice. Say, love is a sacrifice. It comes at a cost. In its most basic form, love is, like we read in verses four through seven, it's not self-seeking. True and pure love can never have ulterior motives. And if so, so if I love, my love for my wife is solely focused on her, my intentional, right, actionable love, I have to become nothing. My selfish desires, even the ones that are inactive, like I just don't want to do anything right now. That's a desire, (laughs) right? I just want to sit here. I just don't feel like doing anything at all. That has to die. Apathy has to die. And of course it does if we know that love is a choice and a verb. You can't sit on your butt and love somebody and prefer to just stay where you are, right? You have to sacrifice that part of your flesh. You have to choose to get up and do something. That in itself is a sacrifice because you're saying, my desire to just not do anything is not important anymore. I'm sacrificing that. But obviously, it's a little bit more than just sacrificing your apathy. What is a blessing or a gift if you expect or demand something in return? That's not a blessing. That's not love. That's a transaction. You're a business. That's what you are. If you give something to somebody and say, now, love me back. (laughs) I deserve it. That's a transaction. But if you understand that love is a sacrifice, you are freed from the expectations of getting something in return. And you're also blessed, thank God, with the joy of self-forgetfulness. It's just not about me. I'm not even thinking about myself when I love someone else. That's how we should be. 
I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm thinking about them. I'm seeing them through God's eyes as a beloved child. So how does God see you? Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, and he's, Paul's talking about in our relationships with one another, but we're taking the mindset of Jesus here. And we learn how Jesus, what Jesus did for us, which reflects how God sees us. He says this, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, right? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, coming to us as a human, God in the flesh, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it wasn't that he didn't understand the cost. Right? We're saying love is a sacrifice. It comes at a cost. Jesus understood the cost. But it also wasn't that he calculated the cost and thought, you know what, I think this will work out for me in the end. Right? He understood the cost. God sees you as worth it. He looked at the immense cost and said, yes, I still want to do this. This is mind-boggling when you think about it. It's the most beautiful and the most extravagant exchange ever. It's not a transaction. It's an exchange. We traded places, right? We were so unworthy. We were dead in our trespasses. And God deemed us worthy of that sacrifice. Amen? So the value of your love for others is determined by how well it blesses the object of your love, but also how much it costs you. It does. It's not a point of pride to say, look how much this cost me. And as soon as you've done that, it's not love. But you should count the cost. Because if it's not costing you anything, what is it? in your relationships, in your marriages? What are you giving up? What are you sacrificing? If it's not costing you anything, you might, be, you might be doing things that are just convenient. You might just be doing things that are easy. You might be sheltering or protecting your heart. When in a marriage and in a relationship, we let it all go, right? As brothers and sisters, we're there for each other and we have to give it, we have to give something up. Amen. The measure of a man is the measure of his heart. I want to read these as corny as this sounds. I want to read lyrics to a song. But I think it's so good. It's so appropriate for what we're talking about today. It's a song, Measure of a Man by Missy Edwards. Missy Edwards. She says, the measure of a man is the measure of his love. Because when it's all been said, remember we were talking about in heaven, the language is love. What is, what's the need for prophecy in heaven? What's the need for the gift of knowledge in heaven? What carries over is love. Not that we shouldn't be practicing those gifts now, but they all foretell of love. 
Because when it's all been said, when it's all been done, when the race is run, it all comes down to love. Did you learn to love is what you will ask of me. Did you learn to love? Not about my ministry. Did you learn to love? Not about my money. Did you learn to love? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way that you love us. We receive your gift of salvation this morning. We recognize the cost that your son endured on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God. Lord, you traded places with us and we're thankful. So right now I pray that you would revive our hearts to the, the truth, to the value of your love, Lord, that it would just infect us, that we would be covered in your love. And when we go out today, Lord, in our marriages, in our workplaces, God, in our marriages, Lord, I pray right now for all of our marriages that you would heal the brokenness, that you would restore the things that you desire in our marriages, that there would be sacrifice, that there would be action, that there would be choice. Lord, that we would exemplify Jesus in the church in our marriages, that it would be a light to the world. Lord, we recognize the power that you have bestowed upon marriage, the purpose it is for the kingdom, a ministry to the world of what your love looks like to your people, that our husbands would love our wives like, like, like Christ loved the church, that we would die to ourselves, and that the wife would be a servant to, the, to, to Christ and follow him wherever he goes, Lord. Thank you, God. We thank you for that picture. Lord, in our workplaces, that we would carry the love of Christ wherever we go, that we wouldn't hold back, that we wouldn't be afraid of rejection, but we would know that we are firmly held in your hands, that your love is all that we need, and we can take that wherever we go with no fear of rejection, God. Thank you, Father. Revive us, Lord. Revive our hearts. Bring us back to life, understanding the truth of your love again today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen, amen.